Well, hi, everybody. I'm Paul Hines, the founder of GSA, and you're listening to the Little Blue Podcast. This episode, we're talking to one of my favourite people, Dr. Ben Rocket. Ben's an intelligent and considered person. Importantly, he's a very humble person and a generous one. He gives of himself and his special quality for the benefit of others. Ben has a fascinating story. He opens up about how a motorbike accident radically changed the direction of his life. Up until that point, I hadn't realised um, that I'd break. Until that had happened, I just assumed that you could use your body, push your body, and, and, and it would always be there and respond. And I hadn't realised that when it breaks, um, sometimes you need to ask for help. We talked to him about his unique interest in ridiculous endurance events. For me, the lessons along the way were the, the important parts. So discovering what it means to be tired, what it, what, it, what it means for me to be tired, and what are my particular challenges when I am that tired. And the groundbreaking work that he's involved with with their children's charity, Kids Express, which is very dear to my heart. I was working with, with a group of kids who, for, you know, for whom change was, was happening three, four, five times a year. And the impact of that was, was significant upon them. And the way they communicated their stories was significant upon me. That's all on this episode of the Little Blue Podcast. Welcome everybody and today I've got one of my favourite people on the planet to talk to, sit down and have a chat with. He's the most interesting person, Uh, he's a very highly educated man, a gentle person and very sincere but he's also a very driven person and he's able to push his body to to beyond normal human pain thresholds. Uh, he does have some shortcomings and uh, he can do just about everything, this man, but apparently he has real difficulty with surfing. But today I'd like to welcome Dr. Ben Rocket. How are you, Ben? I'm well, thanks, Paul. Yes, yeah, nice to have you here. And tell us about the surfing. How, why, what makes that so hard? You know, it's a good place to start, isn't it? Um, I've never felt more useless at something I've tried so much at. You know, I've, uh, I've headed out several times with people who've given me lessons. In fact, after my first uh, surf lesson, the guy said, uh, come back for one more go. And he says, and if you can't do it at the end of that, there'll be something wrong with you. And uh, at the end of that one, when I still couldn't do it, I said, uh, you know, how big is this problem? <laughs> he said, uh, yeah, you've got a long way to go. I'm not quite sure what's up. So so I guess, um, Ben, who the hell are you? Where, where are you from? Uh, how old are you? And uh, good style of a man, I must say. But just tell us a bit about yourself and maybe go through where you grew up, education, a few few interesting things like that. Yeah, sure. Um, the, well, who, who am I? I'm still working that one out, I'd say, Paul. But um, <laughs> where I grew up is an easier one to go to. Yes, we all are. From uh, Taunton in Somerset back in the UK. And uh, that's pretty much the corner of the country I spent most of my couple of decades in, first couple of decades in. I went through Bishop Fox's high school, mm-hmm. and then did my sixth form at Richard Jewish College, which was just over the road. So pretty comfortable in a small bubble back there in, in Somerset. And from there, I progressed miles and miles away, just up the road to um, to the University of Bath when I was uh, ready to leave sixth form and, and spent quite a bit of time there. What, I, a, what a beautiful place to study. Ah, oh, Paul, it's such a gorgeous corner. It really is. I'm yeah, definitely biased towards it, but it's, uh, it's such a lovely corner of the country. And... Well, in Bath, I, I spent a long time there. I did my uh, my undergrad there, which was in in the Department of Education mm-hmm. at, the, yeah, at the University of Bath. There, looking at various um, subject areas actually, but I really enjoyed the the educational psychology that I was studying, and that's where I started to become interested in in people and the way people think. Mm. And shortly after that, I, I retired back to Taunton. <laughs> you know, it was a small world for me. And uh, found myself working with um, with children in, in a school, uh, a small group of kids in a school, but kids who were struggling with uh, various aspects of being in mainstream education, not necessarily because of the education itself, but because of, of, of life circumstances. And that's what I wanted to understand. I found myself fascinated in... Um, in their histories and how their histories were playing out in their day-to-day. And so I found myself wanting to understand that more and ventured back up to Bath, back up to to the uni to do my PhD there under Sam Carr. Yeah, and uh, I guess we'll get to the not-for-profit work, which has been such a big part of your life. But there was a poignant moment, an accident that you were involved with. Uh, You were out on a bicycle. Um, 
not obsessive about cycling at that point, I believe, and, and you were hit by a car or a truck or something. Can you take us through that if you would be able to? Yeah. Uh, obviously not a great memory and talk about how that shaped the rest of your life. Mm. Yeah, so November 22nd, 2006 was when it happened. And uh, memories do change, but one thing is, is clear, it was a car, it wasn't a truck. It would be a more extreme right. story <laughs> okay. if it was a truck. But I was on my way home um, on my motorbike and, uh, and got um, hit by a car on, on a roundabout. And it, it's funny because so much of life, I think, at that age was happening so quickly, and yet that moment really was, was slow. But despite that, I didn't manage to avoid it. And so it, it, everything was really slow, and it was almost as if you could see it was going to unfold, and now it's happening. And so yet, you're talking about when you were first hit and yeah. leaving the bike, and you, yeah. you, you remember that. Yeah. That it took place very really slowly. Really clearly. Okay. Yeah, really clearly. And, and I remember um, like the temperature. The temperature really sits with me, but I didn't feel cold. It was a cold night. And I remember it being a cold night and it was dark and, and, and raining. But, yeah, at the time, I didn't really pay attention to that. It was just stuff that was going on. And so I kind of lost in this this moment where, yeah, the accident happened. And it was a physical thing. The, 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 the damage was physical. But the the change afterwards was it was anything but physical. I mean, after the recovery was there, the, the, probably the most significant part of that was how it changed relationships, how it changed my plans. Um, for what I wanted to do in, in, in can, personal time. Can we just talk about relationships and, and mm. how did it change relationships? Um, so afterwards, walking was, was a, a bit of a challenge. I spent a little bit of time uh, being wheeled around in a chair and then using crutches a lot as, as part of that recovery. Um, but up until that point, I hadn't realised um, that I'd break. And I think I'd, until that had happened, I just assumed that you could you know, use your body, push your body, and, and, and it would always be there and respond. And... And up until that point, I hadn't realised that when it breaks, um, sometimes you need to ask for help. And, and that, was how, that was the first lesson I had to, to overcome, was the reluctance to ask for help. Um, whether it was, I mean, it's, it, it sounds like you know Bath, and Bath is a hilly place, and mm. when you're on wheels, it's not a particularly great place to be. Um, but things like curbs, um, steps getting into shops, uh, having that realisation that you take so much for granted, access, um, being able to go and see people of your own free will, not having to arrange um, special transport or anything like that to be able to get there. Um, it, made, it forced me to, to ask for help. So completely independent prior to the accident mm. and, and it sounds like didn't have a real need to rely on others for, for help and that came about after the accident. And it was something I, I um, found myself quite angry about. Um, not wanting to ask for the help, not wanting to accept the help, but knowing I needed it. Yep. Um, I don't know whether it was about being proud or, or actually being quite defensive about mm. about the the, um, the vulnerability. Now, that accident, it sounds like, shaped your life. And in, in if we break your life into two areas, firstly, your amazing endurance accomplishments, uh, and then we go on to the not-for-profit later on. Um, can we talk about... Uh, I'm fascinated that the incredible endurance events that you've participated in, the records you've held, to me are very selfish endeavours and, and that's counterbalanced by your working life which has all been about giving to others. Can you try to reconcile that for mm. us? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a difficult one, that, Paul. It is. Um, <laughs> I guess it I'm is. I'm trying yeah. to be yeah. difficult, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. With the... the, the um, the physical stuff it is typically on a bike now um, that I, I tend to um, push myself and to go off on longer trips. And uh, and what I get from yeah to think about it from a, from a selfish pursuit, what I get from that is a freedom, is a peace, um, a real peace in in my way of thinking. And from that, I gain a lot of clarity as well. So I can go out and a bit like riding a bike, I can obsess over a certain thought, or I can. Try and think about nothing as well. I can get lost in a headspace um, to explore something in detail or I can get lost in nothing at all. That's fascinating. And so I do find that a really cleansing process to be able to go out and, and particularly on a bike and, and also through running, I, I do find a, almost a sanctuary in my mind just to be able to, to enjoy the landscape that I'm in, um, to really, for, for like on a bike, for example, feel the corners that I'm going around or to... Um, feel the, the changes in air temperature if you go through little pockets and valleys. and um, Yeah, I, I, I find that a really uh, 
personally cleansing thing to be able to do. Almost a heightened state of awareness. Yeah, absolutely, and, and, yeah. And a mesmeric sort of effect. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost lost in the thought process now of... of it, it's, it's things like the feel of the bike, like the, the, the feel of the handlebars um, and my feet in the shoes. Just a real intense awareness of parts of my, my body in relation to the bike, but also the, the, my body as it's working. So feeling the, the, the pressure in my... Um, in my in my thighs, if I'm putting, you know, if I'm cycling up a hill, which I'm pretty useless at, but I, even that, I enjoy the struggle of of fighting the pedals to get them round. And Ben, just for everyone's sake, can you uh, take us through uh, two, say, two or three of the amazing uh, things that you've accomplished in terms of endurance and pushing your body beyond pain thresholds? Give us a couple that you you would you're happy to talk about. Yeah, I think one which really um, changed things was actually after the crash that we talked about earlier where um, I, as a result of it, I wanted to, to um, make the most of, of, of independence. And so being confined to um, needing to be supported to get around, um, once I got onto a bike, it was possible for me to, to cycle places of my own free will. And I enjoyed, you know, arranging dinners with people who lived a bit further afield and, and cycling there. And, um, and, and that started off maybe across town. And yep. then it became people in the next town and then a couple of counties over. It and sounds like it's further than you'd ever travelled before, and it, even yeah, for education. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so you know, threw away those home comforts and, uh, and, and braved the big wide world of um, the next county. Uh, but but what, what I got from that independent travel was, was um, a keen interest to work out where I can go next and what else I could do. And it might seem like a bit of a jump, but um, in 2008 with a couple of close friends um, and also my, my dad, uh, headed across to the USA uh, with a plan of cycling from one coast to the other. And we loaded up a couple of bikes, and, and it wasn't particularly strenuous, but what it did was open up this awareness that doing the same thing day after day headed in the same direction, you actually cover quite a lot of ground. And I was explaining that one time to to a kid in a school um, who found it incredible that you could cycle across America and said it was extreme. And, and having done it, I didn't really feel it was extreme because we were stopping and talking to people and enjoying the sights along the way. Um, it really wasn't extreme. And put it into perspective, I knew this kid cycled to, to and from school. So we worked out how far his cycle to school was and how many years he'd been doing that. And he'd cycled more than the equivalent distance across the US. Um, and I was, at the time, trying to be quite encouraging of, of, of him and say that you know, this, this riding across America wasn't a particularly um, impressive feat. But, you know, I was quite proud I'd cycled across America. Mm-hmm. But in explaining this to him, he looked at me and said, so what you did is pretty rubbish. <laughs> and uh, and I loved it. I loved yeah. how he, you know, in his mind, he was thinking, oh, I've done something exactly the same as that, but I've gone further than you. And uh, and it was really nice. I, I enjoyed his um, his reflection on what he does as part of a routine day-to-day, but reframing it in... The difference is he goes back and forth between the same two points, whereas I never went to the same. I just kept going in the same direction. Sure. And uh, and I really like that. I like that different perspective. And so, coming back from that, I was aware of the distance. You know, how how far across the, the states is it? Um, but I was also aware of the same activity day in day out. And uh, and then I just became interested in those longer distance rides. And um, so this is where it starts getting ridiculous, Ben. Take us through it. Well, yeah. So um, it was it was the night out in. In Bristol, of all places, still in the southwest of England. Uh, it was a night out in Bristol where, where a friend said um, that somebody from his village had, had tried riding from Land's End to John O'Groats and back to Land's End. Um, which Can you is, explain to everyone, yeah, that, that's yeah. the point to point, the, the top to the bottom, isn't it, and then back again. Yeah, and I'm yeah. very aware I'm sat in Australia talking about <laughs> extreme points in the UK, which yeah. is um, all fits within one state here. Um, but yeah, so Land's End is at the bottom of uh, Cornwall. Um, and John O'Groats is the top of Scotland. And, yeah, the, the, the previous um, fastest time was held by a guy called Bob Brown, um, who had gone from, uh, from Land's End to John O'Groats and back down in six days and 20 hours. And um, the, the, my friend from university was talking about a guy from his village who was, who was trying to go faster than that, um, but had stopped at John O'Groats. Now, I don't particularly like out-and-back routes because the whole time you're on the way out, you're very aware that you have to, to come Winter. back. So I don't like that. I much prefer loops. Uh, but, but even so, I, I was interested in, in the distance and the time. And, and the distance itself was less than riding across the States, but the approach to it was going to be um, very, very different. So rather than touring, 
and enjoying what you're doing. It was a case of how quickly can you get from, from A to B wow. and back. Um, and so I didn't really understand it. And what was the record? Uh, it was six days and 20 hours at the time, and, and I managed to get back, and this is in 2010, in five days and 21 hours. And um, the ride itself was um, a lovely outcome, and for me was a feat of cycling, but was really a feat of relationships and putting together the right team for months and months beforehand uh, to understand what happens when you're that tired, when, or when I'm that tired, when I'm that hungry, um, when I'm in that much discomfort. And it, it was a... It was an experiment, and and, and the, the the guy Andy Shaw who who um, made it possible was very honest afterwards, and he said if I if I'd met your team before this, I would never have sponsored it <laughs> because they're a bunch of friends. <laughs> uh, but it was really important to me that the relationships were there. That that if um, if you're going to put yourself into a situation where you are that vulnerable for for many reasons, that you've got people around you that you know you can rely on for support, the right support at the right time. And that doesn't always look like support to people who don't know you as well as the people in the team do. And so some of it could have looked like abuse, some of it could have looked reckless, um, <laughs> but it's having the right people to know what's, what sort of support you need at that time. Yep. And, and, and for me, the lessons along the way were the, the important parts. So discovering what it means to be tired, what it, what it means for me to be tired, and what are my particular challenges when I am that tired and, um, and that hungry, and, uh, and how obsessed and single-minded I can become when I am that hungry. Ridiculously, <laughs> I would say. But I think it's, it's uh, important that I or you introduce uh, what is quite a, 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 a... You are quite a freak of nature in that you have this ability to go to pain thresholds that, that us mere mortals can't get to. And I, I, you and I have talked about this before, but I wonder if you can uh, try to educate people on what is your uh, specific talent in that area. <laughs> talent being, yeah, <laughs> being numb. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm interested in, in um, performance and, and what it means to be um, performing optimally and, and, and why some people can push themselves to different limits than, than others and and I think that there, there's so many factors that, that influence that that performance um, and the stuff I can can do and can't do is, is is all just part of a range and there are people who can push themselves in ways that I can only ever dream of but um, yeah I, I guess I learned through a lot of my training for that ride that that um, prolonged pain is something which I'm quite comfortable with this sort of the, the, the sharp, sharp, sudden pains. I'm, I would describe myself as a wimp. Um, but anything which is um, prolonged pain um, seems to be um, something I can, I can tolerate for quite a long time. Yeah. Have you had it measured? Do, do, are, you, are you certain that that does exist in you? Or is it just a feeling that it's there? It's more a feeling that it's there. And, um, and that's where I become um, unclear on whether it's part of physiology um, that, that makes that happen, or whether it's more of an emotional experience, or a, a factor and of determination. Possibly, yeah, yeah, and and that's where I continue to be interested in, in studying others, but also studying myself, my responses in certain situations, and um, and trying to, to trying to put myself into situations which are different, different in many ways that allow me to um, to come face to face with that. I, I'm just fascinated by endurance athletes, and and I know that a lot of people are. What, why and what, what? Why the next thing? And it seems like the most, the, the craziest of addictions. And once you've got that affliction, you can't shake it. Mm. Uh, can you try to help help us understand why people are doing these ridiculous things? And um, yeah, yeah, just just try to help us get it. Can you help me in return? <laughs> yes, sure. <laughs> <laughs> what are you after? I don't know. <laughs> two things. I guess two things interest me is. is Endurance is, is measured usually in two ways, either by distance or by time. And if we measure it by distance, there seems to be a compulsion to then go further. And if it's measured by time, there's a compulsion to then go faster. And there aren't, those won't stop. And I find that really fascinating, that those people who pursue such extreme things, and I, I, there are people out there doing far more extreme things than I could ever imagine doing. And so I look at them in awe and think... Are you going to go? Are you trying to go further, or are you trying to go faster? And and many people do both. And and so you're indicating it's it's about competition and being competitive. 
Uh, Are you? For some people, yeah. I think for I, you. Um, for me, uh, I more of a discovery for me. I, if it's competitive, it's with myself. And and what I I enjoy competing with the emotions, the emotional turbulence, and overcoming that when I'm doing the endurance exercises. So I go through quite early on in, in an event. I go through really predictable uh, emotional ranges. So if on the if I'm on the bike, really stupid things like I'm hoping my early on I hope my chain snaps or I hope that um, a wheel buckles beyond repair because then it's an excuse that I didn't give up. Yep. Right, the, the 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 kit failed. Now you're sounding like me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're sounding normal now. And so, and so I, I, I grapple with that, and I think, well, why am I why am I wanting this stuff to fail? Is it because it's then something I don't have to admit that I don't want to continue? But seldom does that actually happen. And so you, then quickly after that, it's, it's a different mindset. I'm thinking, well, if that's not going to fail, I don't want to fail. My, I don't want my body or my mind to fail, so I'm in it. And then and then I sort of settle into it, and, and that's almost part of a warm up for me on a long on a long event. That emotional, that that initial emotional hurdle of, of how do I get out of this. Um, is is the first one to overcome, and, and so I, f- I find it useful when that happens earlier and earlier. The more events that I do, the earlier that happens, and now I kind of welcome it. I, I I laugh at how much I don't want to be doing some of the things yeah, that I'm doing. But you know what the feeling is going to be that go, that is beyond it, and, and that, you look forward to that. Yeah, and that's the piece I get addicted to. To use that term, addicted, yeah, I get okay. I, I get addicted to that um, feeling of overcoming the self doubt. Um, the reluctance to be in that situation and overcoming that and thinking um, that was faced and that was overcome is the piece which keeps me going back and trying to do more and more. That helps. Helps me understand it. And um, there's there's one one particular one that I cannot understand, that, that um, an event which was the Baffin Island uh, Traverse where you went to the North Pole or the Canadian Arctic and cycled from one side to the other. Yeah. So what it was, the hell? Yeah, yeah. So it was. Um, it wasn't anywhere um, as far north as the North Pole itself, but flew to um, <laughs> north of Canada. Geography's it never was, made a strong suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the Baffin Arctic Island. Circle, let's call it. Yeah, that. and yeah. it was. In, yeah, certainly inside the Arctic Circle. Baffin Island is um, is an island north of of um, Canada's mainland in Nunavut, and um, is a remarkable place. I think it's it's, I think it's the fifth largest island in the world. Um, Depending on what you classify as islands, I think you know, I think that varies, but maybe that'll come up in a pub quiz sometime. And the the idea of that was to to go up there with a bike made by Coroz Bikes, which is um, a, a, again a local company from back in the UK um, that do bespoke titanium bikes. And it was a project put together with Coroz Hope, who were doing uh, the techno the, the the kit on the bike, um, and um, Strada Wheels, who built the the wheels for what is effectively a fat bike. And we wanted to, to build um, a bike that would be laden with all kit and to, um, to pedal on snow and ice and, and, and to be able to, to traverse Baffin Island. And it was an incredible experience. And it, 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 it just, it probably, this is one of the first, first times I've tried to, to, to describe it. I've written a lot about the experience, um, but talking about it is, is hard because there were things I saw which were so different, and yet I can't describe them as being different. I would describe two very different scenes, and I don't have the words to be able to pick out the differences. But in my mind, I can still see that they were wildly different. Things such as um, the perfect air bubbles formed in, in really turquoise sea ice was just absolutely incredible. Um, watching glaciers hanging off the mountains as we're passing through Ayokutuk, which means the land that never melts, and... Um, passing through there and, and sadly seeing that it was melting right. um, and being aware of not only the the ride that I was trying to complete but also the um, the visible changes through speaking to people back on the you know back in Iqaluit which is in the south of the island speaking to them about well, how is how is Baffin Island changing how has it changed over time socially as well as environmentally um, and then to go out there and in the time it took for that ride, for me to complete that ride, to think about how I'm changing as a result of being here, and and that realization that the whole time everything is changing, but being stuck in that period of time, I was up there for for um, just under four weeks, and that period of time up there, reflecting on on the change that took place because of um, the environmental conditions, I'd never been somewhere that cold for that long, 
Um, I'd never been somewhere where everything I had to do was that cumbersome, you know, with thick jackets yeah. on and gloves. And hard to send text messages. <laughs> yeah, hard to send text messages, yeah, that's true. Um, hard to, to, even that, keeping things like a camera going, putting the batteries in your armpits to keep the batteries warm, um, food that you want to eat, um, you have to keep close to your body so it doesn't freeze. Um, it was it was really quite an incredible experience. And how long did that take, Ben? I was up there for yeah, just just um, just shy of four weeks. Four weeks. Wow. When pedalling for. And how many people did you take with you on that ride? Well, I found it was um, it was really interesting. So so heading up there at first was um, was a plan to to use the ride to prepare for um, some other journeys in 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 the, in the cold, and um, and so heading up there. Beforehand, I flew with a group of people who were he- heading off to do a, um, a walk, to a traverse on skis and pulling pulling sleds. Um, and then they set off um, a week, and I was le- I, I stayed behind for a week. And they actually returned before I I, I started pedalling, and told me some stories of, of what it was like for them and the efficiencies that they had. And and straight away I pedalled off, and there was a um, there was a guy who had been through that that traverse beforehand on skis who was. Um, giving advice and, and um, making sure that I wasn't making silly decisions, silly choices. Um, but the absence of lots of people, contact, whether that was face-to-face or through um, te- you know, technology, not, not, I didn't take a phone, so I wasn't in regular contact. I just took a, um, like a tracking device, which allowed me to check so, in. So you were on your own? No, there was, a, there was an, uh, another chap who was, um, who was uh, on skis, um, who was um, help, helping with the navigation. And um, and that in itself was an interesting point where are you reflecting on or was I reflecting on on the absence of the relationships um, and recognizing how much whether it was the times that we did come in you know into contact or whether it was the times that we were separated thinking of of that is the one person who knows exactly where I am yeah and that's an unusual circumstance even if we if we seek alone time or well, when I seek alone time back here in day-to-day life there are multiple people who know of my whereabouts and yet this guy was the only guy who knew and the 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 sense of of safety which was projected into that relationship the sense of vulnerability projected into that relationship um, and also the sense of of um, my being an amateur in that environment um, the the absence of skills experience and familiarity with that was really quite confronting and how long would you spend on a on a bike? What was the longest day you had on a bike on that particular expedition? Uh, probably about twelve hours. Twelve um, hours, at, yeah, uh, in one in one go. Block. Yeah, wow. And that looked the same as twelve minutes because and everything. Ha- what behind. about on the uh, trip around uh, from the point to point in the UK? What, uh, what was the longest you spent on a, on a bike? Tw- Twenty four hours. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And do you get off to eat? Uh, to eat, not necessarily. No. Um, no, and so getting off t- on, on the the point so on the the point to point yes, ride, yeah, um, yeah. that would I'd be getting off there to to have um, short uh, short naps, short sleeps. Yep. Um, I'd be getting off to um, to have an appointment on the physio table. Yep. Um, or sometimes just to um, <laughs> just get off the bike and move around in a slightly different way. Yeah. Um, but so on you the... didn't go to the toilet for five days. <laughs> well, yeah. So yeah, hoping we could we could squeeze over that piece, but um, yeah, for certain for certain processes, I would get off the bike. Right, um, okay. For other ones, I'd just give myself a quick wash down with a bottle of water. And, right. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah. It wasn't overly pleasant. But on the on the ride across Baffin, it was a um, a large part of that was getting off to melt snow so that you could you know drink it or mix it in with the dehydrated meals and. Um, and melting snow was was um, a big part of, of of that trip. Putting the tent up, that took time. Making sure that most of that was done before the, the sun um, had gone down because the temperature changed. Um, yeah, it was it was the two very very different rides. Absolutely, and and you've just recently uh, climbed Kilimanjaro and uh, with Tim Jarvis. And uh, is it just quickly on that? What, what did you get out of that? Or was that all pleasure? Or No, it wasn't all pleasure. Um, I think what I I learned from Tim was uh, rich lessons were learned from Tim as we we were climbing Kilimanjaro. And the purpose of of that climb um, was for a project called 25-0. And and there are 25 mountains at zero degrees latitude um, that have got ice on them. And in 25 years, that will be gone. 
And that is a proxy. We can see, we can use that as an indicator of, of what's going on for global change. Now, sadly, there's nothing that can be done, even if we, if we were to change radically now, that nothing can be done to save those mountains or save the ice on those mountains. Um, that will be gone. And really, it's a, it, Tim's question is, what else are we prepared to lose? Let's use these as an indicator of, of change at a global scale and, and, and ask ourselves, what else are we prepared to lose? Because the, the impact of what we do all over um, has, well, sorry, the impact of what we do wherever we happen to be has um, a consequence all over the world. And so we, we don't live in pockets. We, we actually live as part of a global system. And, and looking at how our activities um, aggregate and then have negative impacts elsewhere. So we, might, we, may, we may be producers of particular issues in one area, but that, that gets displaced and other people, other areas um, consume those, yep. those challenges. And, and so climbing Kilimanjaro was um, one of those 25 mountains that Tim and his project will be, will be climbing in order to document that change. And yes, that's an environmental change, but the, the way, the, the integration of, of, of people, of, of culture with the environment is, um, well, it, they're inseparable. And so looking at, if this is what we see happening from an environmental perspective, what's the knock-on consequence for people? And the, the project in itself taught me um, a way of thinking. And it was really Tim that taught me that way of thinking, which is, how do we go much bigger? How do we think much bigger than what it is that we're maybe, you know, the, 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 the micro-elements of the projects that we're working on? And what do we need to do? What, what, what big systems change do we need to bring into place in order to be effective at um, creating change at scale? Mm. And so, yeah, climbing the mountain was part of it. Um, changing, a changing way of thinking was, was the bigger part of it. Well, let's bring it back to the centre of the universe here in Australia. And uh, you, were, you, when I first met you, it was a, about five or six years ago, you were talking about doing, um, tr circling Australia, riding around Australia and beating that record. Is that still on the agenda? I would love to do that, Paul, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, you asked earlier about the difference between um, the selfish um, and the selfless um, size of life. Yeah, the, sorry about that. The, well, I, <laughs> I skipped past the, the, the work side. I think one thing I'm rubbish at doing is um, splitting my focus. For the last four years, in terms of identity, for the last four years I've very much been um, embedded in the work that I'm doing, which is, is quite um, mind-oriented. Mm -hmm. And the, the demands of that have meant that I've not really been doing anything um, with the bike. Right. And so, yeah, I, it is certainly something I, I still wish to, to undertake. Well, you're 31 now. Ben, yep. you've got to start thinking about when you're going to get this one done. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Thankfully, I'm just coming into a window where it might be um, from, from, if you look at averages, looking at how my body works for, for these types of events, coming into a, a period where you typically see people excelling in those distances. And, and the people I, I, I look to for that are um, sort of five, six years older. They're ahead of me in life. And, um, and I, I study them with, with an absolute fascination of what they've done. Um, to get to that particular point where they can, they can take on these long rides, and they're just, they're extraordinary humans, extraordinary humans um, who make it look. Um, so they don't make it look comfortable. They don't so, make so, it look easy. So the sweet spot for weirdos like yourself is is what mid thirties or something. Is it for for these sorts of accomplishments? Yeah, it seems to be that they're they're up there rather than sort of mid twenties. Is it the the ultra endurance side seems to be in the in the mid thirties that people are. That are really right, pulling out huge performances. Yep. Yeah. So, so the, the best is ahead of you? Possibly. Given the time to do it. Now, the thing that's taken your time and getting back to the other side of Dr. Ben Rocket is, is what you do for others. Um, and which counterbalance that's, that selfishness that I, I perceive as being part of the endurance side. Um, those pursuits. So can you tell us about uh, what you've done in your working life and then we'll get on to Kids Express where you've spent I think the last five years um, giving to, to children. Yeah well it's really um, it was a gift to me is the way I see it um, rather than um, me giving to them. It was, it was a gift to me. It was the, those kids I mentioned previously I was working between my undergrad and my postgrad I was working in a school and it was the gift from those kids that made me really interested in human relationships. How do their home relationships, how do their peer relationships affect the way that they are? 
and the way that they see the world. And I became aware of so many ignorances in my upbringing or as a consequence of my upbringing that I had never considered life from their perspective. And so I, I grew up with my parents and my brother and sister and never, never ever questioned how long am I here for um, or how long am I going to be in this, this home, in this family. And that had never been something I, I had thought. I never thought that it would change. And yet I was working with, with a group of kids who, for, you know, for whom change was, was happening three, four, five times a year. And the impact of that was, was significant upon them. And the way they communicated their stories was significant upon me. Looking at how the system didn't necessarily, um, from their perspective, didn't support them in a way that they needed supporting. And regardless of the reason for their placement breakdowns, they felt it was their fault. And that stuck with me. It stuck with me to understand the system that they were part of, the system that sought to help them, and um, the system that maybe didn't communicate its intentions to be helping them. Um, because to, to them, they, they interpreted all the changes being because they were not worthy of, of staying where they were, um, that people didn't want them, or they weren't good enough to, to, to remain in a family. And that was really... That, that was significant. The, the way they communicated, quite matter-of-fact sometimes, that that was the reality for, their, for them and their lives, um, sat with me. And so that awareness really was a, was a gift that they gave me, that awareness that life is different for different people. And for kids, they don't necessarily have the voice to speak up um, about systems that um, create instability for them. Yep. And, and, and the gift of consistency, stability, predictability in, in those that I could turn to, those that were there to, to support me and look after me as I was growing up, that, that, that's a gift I had taken for granted. Yep. And it's actually really nice if a child can take their caregiver for granted. Not that taking them for granted is nice, but the fact that they can take them they for can, granted yeah. suggests that there's an element of security in that. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, it's lovely that, that, that we become aware of that and, and stop taking them for granted and really appreciate those people that are around us. But for, for, for kids who have never had the, the... They've never been afforded the opportunity to take those that look after them and care for them and love them for granted, the world can be quite a dangerous and threatening place. And so I, I contacted um, Sam Carr, who's based at the University of Bath, and, and expressed my interest in this area and, and human relationships, but, it, but in particular, children and caregiver relationships. And, and he said, well, yeah, let's explore it. Let's explore what's going on for these kids. And, and that started a, a four-year um, study where we were looking at placement stability and the impact of placement stability. But importantly, how do we understand when a relationship is developing? between a child and, and, and their caregiver. And that involved lots of, of uh, spending a lot of time with, with kids and talking to them about their relationships, observing their behavior, and then talking to them about how they feel about certain places and recognizing that the behavior and the feelings often don't match. It doesn't seem to make much sense. So kids who were behaving in particular ways that didn't seem to match how they described their feeling about a particular place. and. And that disconnect, found, I, I found that really interesting, you know, going, well, why do we behave in particular ways when that's not necessarily the message we're trying to communicate or that we need to communicate? Can you help us understand? Yeah, exactly. So it, that's ultimately the, the, the pickle is how do we understand and do we jump to conclusions too quickly about what's going on? And, and sometimes the, the thing we react to is the behavior because we've got expectations about what sort of behavior is acceptable rather than saying, well, what's the reason for this behavior? And so rather than, you know, reprimanding and saying what's wrong with you to somebody who's acting out, is saying, well, what's happened to you? What's going on for you right now? And looking for the, what causes the behavior rather than reacting to the behavior itself. And that might seem like a simple change, but it's really hard to do. A lot of, what, a lot of how we react in, in, in systems is, is geared to um, reacting to the behavior and, and solving the behavior or, or correcting the behavior rather than addressing the reason that the behavior exists in the first place. Mm. And that fascination continues. Um, we now, through through my work at Kids Express, we look at... So firstly, what is Kids Express? Take it, just help us understand what Kids Express is, what it does, what, what its mission is. Yeah. Um, Kids Express uh, was set up in 2006 and is a it's an extraordinary organization it was forward thinking when it was set up it's a 
um, it's a it's a place of transformation for um, how children can express what's going on for them. And Kids Express provides expressive therapy, which is um, which involves music, art, drama, dance, um, play therapy, to give children the capacity to tell their story in their way through the sorts of languages that children would use when discovering themselves, discovering the world, and interacting with it. Okay, what age and how do they come to you? Um, kids um, that come to Kids Express are between the ages of four and fourteen, and they are referred to us through a variety of professional referral pathways. Um, that may include psychologists and counsellors. It could be GPs. It could be um, through the education sector as well. And it's a, there's no payment for service, is there? Kids Express is committed to raising funds so that that, that finance don't bar anybody from from getting the support that they need. Um, there is uh, occasionally a, a, a contribution fee, a nominal contribution fee, um, but Kids Express is committed to raising 95%, if not 100%, of the funds that allow people to come to the service. Which is brilliant. It, it's open for anyone. And the only test is that a, a child has suffered some form of trauma, and that's a relative item, but, but what is trauma to one person is not to another. How do you measure trauma? Yeah, well, that's, that's, a, that's a fascinating question, <laughs> yeah. Paul. There are different definitions of trauma and, and what a trauma is, but traumas and trauma responses and traumatic events are as different as the people that experience them. Um, and so a tr- the, the, the understanding we tend to go by at Kids Express is that a trauma, a trauma response is something which, or, or trauma is defined as, as, as something which overwhelms the individual's ability to cope. And, and I think that phrasing of it's really important because how you react to a particular experience and how I react to a particular experience can be completely different. What overwhelms me, you may take in your stride. And the care networks around me uh, may not be able to support me in the same way that yours can. Yeah. So if I'm in a circumstance where based on my life experience and, and those around me, I'm overwhelmed by um, something that has happened. Again, it, it varies from, from person to person, but the response that I have to that can make me hypervigilant to ongoing threat and danger because something's happened which has fallen outside of my personal or my relational or my, my environmental capacity to cope. And as a result, I don't want to experience that again. And so I'm looking for the threat, looking for the danger in everything that's around me. And that's an exhausting way to be. And it's an exhausting way to be. I have a view that, that, uh, that everyone has had trauma at some point in their life and that, that the Kids Express program really should be... <laughs> everyone could benefit from it. Mm. Sure. I mean, if, if we think about... We, can, we could refer to those as, as adverse childhood experiences. And there is a study, ACEs, and there is a study called the ACE study, the Adverse Child Experience Study, which recognises that adversity is part of life. It's a necessary part of life. And because of, of adverse experiences, we actually learn how to cope. We develop resilience through that. But the aggregation of multiple adverse experiences can start to have a, um, an impact upon individuals where, sadly, we can we can really forecast the likelihood of ongoing challenges, relational challenges, behavioural challenges um, across the lifespan. So what Kids Express does is it takes an early intervention approach to say how can we address these challenges early so that the problems don't grow with these kids into adulthood. Yeah and Ben what I always like to to say and it's it's pretty simple that really what we're doing at Kids Express is giving kids an even chance at happiness does that would that be fair to say? Yeah, it's it's a it's a lovely way of, of, of trying to level a playing field for those who have had possibly disproportionate or yeah. um, or more more challenging than we would like circumstances, and um, and for us we 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 take a view of um, happiness. We take a view of happiness as security. And so that's security and, and safety, a sense of safety and regulation. So it's not an end point. No. No, and I think that, that that's um, that's a really interesting point. The concept of an endpoint is that um, healing from from trauma is an ongoing process. Um, it's not as if we reach a point where the job's done, and it, it is very relational. And so, um, one of the things we know about trauma is the capacity to be triggered, um, sometimes years and years later, triggered by um, something which could be completely separate and disconnected from what actually happened but happens in the here and now and reminds us of, of something that led to that consequence or that feeling or that state of, of being hyper hypervigilant. 
Um, and that threat is something which takes time for us to, as individuals to overcome. Um, but being able to express that in particular ways that allow us to make sense of what happened and allow us to make sense of when it happened so that we are aware that the threat isn't in the present moment. It was something which is in the past. Using appropriate ways to um, engage and ex engage with those memories and those events and then express them in a way that um, externalizes them is vital. And for many, that can be done through words. For many, that can be done through words. We can make sense of something, we can talk about it, and, um, and we can process it, we can express it in that way. But for children, depending on when a trauma occurs, particularly if it's in key developmental stages, sometimes the words or the, the, um, the vocabulary to describe those experiences isn't there. And so we're looking for, for ways that children can engage with maybe the, the, physio the physiology of that trauma response because stacks of research shows us that the, the impact of trauma is stored in the body. And so the, it's, it's not just in words. It's not as if we can just simply... We record a memory and then we describe it. We record a memory, but we have emotions attached to that. We have um, physiological responses attached to that. And so certain states or feelings can be misconstrued, misinterpreted as threatening or tied back to the previous event. One, one example, the concept of, of um, excitement and nervous fear. Very, very similar, identical physiological yeah. responses. But yeah. if that sense of being, you know, excited, being positively energized by an experience is um, going to be rewarding. If that matches the same experience of fear, that same butterflies in the stomach, that increased heart rate, that looking around, rather than looking around that and, and perceiving all those as positive, it's looking around and going, why is this experience happening? And so for some kids, that we, we, we can create or experiences can happen where they start to have a positive engagement with something and then suddenly switch because they, rec they, they recognize that feeling. It starts out in a positive environment, but they suddenly recognize this feeling and tie it back to, to when that feeling was not, you know, didn't appear in a good situation. And so sometimes words can't describe what's happened. Words can be quite abstract. And so I've often used an example that was given to me. Could I explain something that happened to me that I found really difficult in a different language. No, I couldn't express it. Yeah. Um, and so even if we, we recognize that we, the mother tongue of, of the client that we're working with may well be English in, in my case, but that doesn't mean that words, English words are gonna be the best tool for them to be able to express it. And so Kids Express uses the expressive therapies to be able to create environments which allow them to, to engage with it, to externalize it, to process it, to, to look at it and reflect on their story. Um, to feel their story and then to, to make sense of it in a particular way that makes makes sense for them. That's great, Ben. That, that, that was fascinating, uh, everything you were just talking about then. So the, the program is groundbreaking, but has it been proven that, that it's effective? Yeah, so we, we've looked at um, Kids Express. We've looked at the, the service that Kids Express provides, but we've also looked at that in um, an international context. And, and the role of expressive therapies for almost a divergent way of processing an experience is developmentally appropriate for kids. And so looking at the way the brain engages um, with memory and with, with the present moment um, through declarative function as well as physiological function, somatic function, we know that expressive therapy is a really strong way of being able to, um, to engage richly with past and present experiences. We rely a lot on an international um, evidence base, but through Kids Express itself, we create an evidence base where we look at indicators of, of change. We, we, we like the word indicators because we don't want to get to a point where we say we've proven yeah. change, but we, we can start to illustrate indication of change um, in these children. And we look at the primary victims of, of a trauma of, of well-being as a consequence of trauma responses things such as self-regulation and self-awareness um, self-expression or connection to others connection to others is really important that, that's yeah. that relational piece I was talking about earlier um, recognizing the, the, the self in relation to others that you are a safe person for me to go to and that in doing that you're going to welcome me um, in that supportive relationship as well as the capacity to integrate with others. So do we, are we looking at people who have um, withdrawn or are quite isolated or can they go out and connect and, and form these positive relationships with peers? And so we, we look at these indicators of, of, of well-being as a suggestion that we're starting to see 
the necessary building blocks for overcoming those trauma responses. Thank you, Ben. And uh, one final question, and we're talking about you know what could be loosely described with the, the work you're doing uh, with children is uh, giving them some sort of um, level of happiness or a ha- taking them to a happier place, at least on a pathway. What's the pursuit, or what 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 are you pursuing through, through in life? Oh, in it's life. a big oh, question crikey, to finish I, I, with. I almost you? had an answer with you, then, Paul, <laughs> and then you said in life. Goodness, um, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Um, what am I pursuing? I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer it several times over. I think what I'm, what I'm trying to pursue, what I am pursuing with Kids Express, is a broader response to children that offers them a developmentally appropriate way of expressing their experiences. Many, many years ago, the field recognised that we shouldn't treat children like mini adults, and I think there are still ways in which support services can take that on board and look at more appropriate ways to work with children that help them to address challenges as early as possible. And, and I think Kids Express is really onto a, um, onto a winner for, for doing that. I would love to see expressive therapy as a profession grow within Australia, um, and I would love to see um, trauma-sensitive schools developing more wide-scale within Australia. So two parts of Kids Express, actually. There's the therapy that we provide to the children, And then there's the training that we provide for caregivers and for schools, which allow them to um, better recognise and respond in appropriate ways to children grappling with trauma responses to their experiences. And um, I'd love to see both of those approaches really develop within Australia. And uh, and I think right now, looking at how um, children's wellbeing and children's support services are being developed, I think we're really on to... It's a very it's an opportune time now to make sure that we as a we as a, as a country respond in a way that means that we can get more support services to children at the time when they need it most. That's great, Ben. Look, I just uh, want to say that it was another fascinating conversation I've had with you, and I hope everyone else has enjoyed getting to know you a little bit. So thank you so much, Dr. Ben Rocket. Thank you, Paul.